If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter number 7. 1 Corinthians chapter number 7. We're going to look together in our time this morning at verses 8 through 40. Some of the principles in the latter part of our passage are principles that we have addressed in weeks past, but I want for us to more firmly root those in the teaching of the Scripture rather than just the opinion of the pastor. So we're going to look at these verses in the time that we have together. I have really enjoyed the last several weeks at preaching through marriage and family and the gospel, and I hope that you are benefiting and discussing these concepts together as husbands and wives, maybe even within your friend groups as singles and together as families along with your children. I think I can safely say, for those of you who are here last week, last Sunday's sermon was by far, has been by far, the most discussed sermon of those that I have preached in my time here as your pastor. And I've had a few suggest that we should be forecasting for a nursery boom sometime around next February. Hopefully that will prove to be the case for us here as a body. We will continue in our discussion this morning of marriage and family and the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse number 8. If you found your way there, please join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse number 8, here's what God's word says. I say to the unmarried and to widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am, but if they do not have self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with desire. I command the married, not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to leave his wife. But I, not the Lord, say to the rest, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, he must not leave her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not leave her husband. For the unbelieving husband is set apart for God by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is set apart for God by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be corrupt, but now they're set apart for God. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or a sister is not bound in such cases, for God has called you to live in peace. For you, wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Or you, husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? However, each one must live in, his li in the life situation or in his life situation the Lord assigned when God called him. This is what I command in all the churches. Was anyone already circumcised when he was called? He shouldn't undo his circumcision. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? He should not get circumcised. Circumcision doesn't matter and uncircumcision doesn't matter, but keeping God's commands does. Each person should remain in the life situation in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? It shouldn't be a concern to you. But if you can become free, by all means, take the opportunity. For he who is called by the Lord as a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called as a free man is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brothers, each person should remain with God in whatever situation he was called. About virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I do give an opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Therefore, I consider this to be good because of the present distress. It is fine for a man to remain as he is. 
Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Don't seek a wife. However, if you do get married, you've not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she's not sinned. But such people will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. And I say this, brothers, the time is limited. So from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For this world in its current form is passing away. I want you to be without concerns. An unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or a virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord so that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. Now I'm saying this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but because of what is proper and so that you may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. But if any man thinks he's acting improperly toward his virgin, if she is past marriageable age, and so it must be, he can do what he wants. He is not sinning, they can get married. But he who stands firm in his heart, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will, and has decided in his heart to keep his own virgin, will do well. So then he who marries his virgin does well, but he who does not marry will do better. A wife is bound as long as her husband is living. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to anyone she wants, only in the Lord. But she is happier if she remains as she is, in my opinion, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. This passage has, for a variety of reasons, uh, created some confusion and misunderstanding in my estimation. Paul uses language here that some find troubling or some understand. For instance, in verse 10, Paul says, I command the married, not I, but the Lord. In verse 12, but I, not the Lord. In verse 25, he says, I have no command from the Lord, but I do give an opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. In the conclusion of our chapter, in verse number 40, Paul is speaking here in his opinion, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God is the way he brings finality to the chapter itself. Now, let me tell you first what Paul is not doing. Paul is not saying that here are examples of biblical texts that are not binding. Paul is not saying that what I'm saying here is of less value, of less importance, or bears less authority than anything that's said anywhere else. In fact, the Bible, all of the Bible, from in the beginning of Genesis 1-1 to the amen of Revelation is God's Word. It is binding on the life and the conscience of the believer. It bears authority over our life. The Bible is our authority. It is our measure. It is our rule for all matters of faith and practice and life in general. What Paul is saying here is in these instances where it is I speaking and not the Lord is that I do not have a verbatim quote from Jesus on this issue. Rather, in those cases, he is providing a further amplification on or exposition of what Jesus has said in the Sermon on the Mount. 
Several weeks back, months ago now, we looked at that particular passage in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, you have heard that it was said of old, you shall not divorce or you shall not commit adultery. And he continues in this explanation, and he says that any man who divorces his wife, except for the cause of sexual immorality, commits adultery, and any man who marries a divorced woman likewise commits adultery. Now, Paul is amplifying or expounding on that verse in the passage that we're looking at. In other words, in a decidedly different cultural context, what does the teaching of Jesus mean for marriage and family? Look to verse 10. I command the married, not I, but the Lord. In other words, this is the express command of God. A wife is not to leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and the husband is not to leave his wife. Now, that is essentially what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. You are not to divorce your wife. Any man who divorces his wife commits adultery, and any man who uh, marries a divorced woman likewise commits adultery. Now, Jesus is speaking from a patriarchal Jewish cultural experience, right? Jesus is speaking into or out of the Jewish culture where a wife had no recourse, had no option for divorce. And so Jesus speaks specifically to the only avenue for divorce as a means to adultery in the culture. A husband cannot divorce his wife except for the cause of sexual immorality. But in a Greco-Roman culture, a culture, a culture much more like ours than the Jewish culture, Paul inverts the command and says here, a wife is not to leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to leave his wife. The overarching principle of these verses, not just this verse, but the verses that follow, is this. If you are married, remain in your marriage. Stay, stay, and stay. Look to verse 12. Paul says, but I, not the Lord, in other words, this is where we're going to amplify or expound upon that teaching, I, not the Lord, say to the rest, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, he must not leave her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not leave her husband. In the event that the believer finds him or herself in a relationship where they are unequally yoked or mismatched together, when a believer is married to an unbeliever, Paul says the command of God is to remain in that marriage. If you're here this morning as an unbelieving couple and God saves one partner in the relationship, that does not mean that you should then remove yourself from the relationship. Even in those cases where it is difficult as a result of one spouse, one partner being an unbelieving person, we should do everything within our power to remain in that relationship. The command of God, the call of God is to stay and to stay and to stay and to stay. Now, I realize by having observed such circumstances, that there can be difficulties attached to remaining in such relationships. And there's certainly a measure of injustice that comes with that experience. There's an absence of fairness oftentimes in that experience. In the first century, it was usually a believing wife married to an unbelieving husband, and that pattern has stood the test of time. I have watched some of the most faithful 
some of the godliest women that I have ever known in my life bear with an unbelieving and often very difficult husband over the duration of their life. And I've observed how God honored that in their latter years. And I trust that there is for them a crown of righteousness that has been laid up. What, what, you, have to, what you have to set in your mind is there, that we're not looking toward some earthly reward for having run our race well or finishing our course according to the command of God, but the promise of Jesus that there is waiting for them a resounding well done by good and faithful servant. You must be laboring under those circumstances towards something that awaits us beyond the grave, right? Toward a crown of righteousness and eternal reward. In any event, Paul says, stay. And then he gives us some reasons why we ought to in the verses that follow. Look at verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is set apart for God by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is set apart for God by the husband. And what Paul is saying is this, the presence of a believer in the home has a sanctifying effect on the whole family. Even where there's an unbelieving spouse, even where there may be ungodly and immoral things that are happening in that house as a result of the presence of that unbelieving spouse, the presence of the believer has a sanctifying effect on the home. Think about the Sunday morning assembling of the people of God. There's a sweetness of spirit, right? There, there's something that I refer to with reverence as magical that happens when the people of God gets together. And it's the product of the Spirit of God in me coupled together with the Spirit of God in you. It is the collective presence of the Spirit of God in us that makes that moment. Now, we're not chasing an experience or some type of emotional mountaintop experience when we come together this way. But often that can be the product. And it's the direct result of the, 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 the indwelling presence of God's Holy Spirit in our life. That same resurrection presence goes home with us when the service is dismissed. And what Paul is saying in other texts prove the same, is that that presence has a sanctifying effect even when encountering the unclean and common and unholy things of this world. Stay, 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 because your presence as a believer has a sanctifying effect on the family as a whole. Look at the remainder of verse 14. Paul says, otherwise your children would be corrupt, but now they're set apart by God. Paul is not saying that your children are going to be saved by your faith, but he is saying that your faith in Jesus has a direct sanctifying effect on the lives of your children. There are many in this room this morning who had an unbelieving father, an unbelieving mother, but you had a father or a mother who did believe, who did love Jesus. And you know the indelible impression that their testimony has made in your life. 
how in spite of your rebellion and maybe the rebellion of others within the family, you look to them as the strength and stay of your life in the difficult and the dark days. And you watch them persevere through hardship and heartache and many difficulties and how they stood fast with Christ and how Christ stood fast with them. And it marked your life. And eventually, even in spite of your stubbornness and rebellion, God called you to himself, a heart softened over the course of time by the testimony of a faithful parent, received the good seed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've observed that it's become fashionable in recent years to push back on the old adage that we ought to stay, if for no other reason, for the well-being of the children. I'm not talking here about situations where there's physical or sexual abuse or those sorts of things. There are instances where you should separate, where you must remove yourself from very real and present danger. I'm not talking about those situations. But time and even secular theory is proving that the nuclear family is indeed what is best for the children. It seems that it is worth staying, if only for the children. Listen, when, when God built the family as it is, he did not do so haphazardly, but with the knowledge that what is best for children is a nuclear family comprised of a husband and a wife, a mother and a father, and children who were under their authority for a reasonable amount of time. God does happen to know what he's doing. For the well-being of the children, Paul says, because your presence has a sanctifying effect on their life and because the nuclear family itself is good for the emotional, psychological, spiritual, and even physical well-being of the children, Paul says, stay. And I can prove you the truthfulness of this admonition. You take me to any classroom, any school classroom, and you show me the baddest children in the room, the worst ones, and I'll show you the children whose home life is in the most disarray. Without exception, it always proves to be the case. The decisions that you are making, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, have a direct impression, even when you can't see it. When your argument is had outside of their sight or their hearing, the tension in your home can be felt, and it is marking the little hearts of the boys and girls that God has entrusted to your care. For the well-being of the children, Paul says, stay. Verse 15, the Bible says, But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. In other words, if he or she just will not stay, you've no recourse but to let them leave. God has called us to live in peace. It would do you no good to pack a bag and begin to follow after the disunity and the discord and the constant frustration that would come with that experience. You are free to let them go. Verse 16, Paul continues, For you, wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Or you, husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? What, what, what Paul is saying is that in staying you might just be God's means of bringing the message of the gospel to an unrepentant, unregenerate, unbelieving husband or wife. Stay and be faithful to bear witness to the truthfulness of the gospel. Now, 
The Bible speaks elsewhere of the need to do so in a Christ-honoring way. Husbands, we don't take the gospel to our unbelieving wives with clenched teeth and a clenched fist, insisting that our convictions be observed. Wives, you don't take the gospel to an unbelieving husband by nagging or by nagging or by nagging. But with a gentle and quiet spirit, we model our love for Jesus, our love for the gospel. We walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. In spite of the difficulty of living under such circumstances, we remain unaffected by that, walking with heads held high in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember back weeks ago now, months ago, in our Sermon on the Mount series, we talked about this common thread that exists in the ethical teachings of Jesus. There's just one foundational principle. As followers of Jesus, we never let the decisions that we make or the things that we do be influenced by the people or the circumstances around us. That comes through in all of Jesus' teaching, whether it's do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. All of those teachings suggest that there are going to be times in life when we're under duress, when injustice is at work against us, when things just are not fair. And in spite of that, we as Christ followers are to be the people who do what is right when everyone else is doing wrong, who condemn what is wrong when everyone else has called it right. In the difficult circumstances that you may have found yourself this morning, you stay. You do what is right by God, if for no other reason than because it is right by God. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, there's a time to just do right by God because it's doing right by God. I notice that more and more within Christianity, we're, we're bent toward this sort of utilitarian view of the faith where if it serves our interest, we then do it. We almost exclusively talk now about forgiving other people for what it stands to do for us. Like, don't, don't, don't be unforgiving because you'll have to carry that around. It'll do you some disservice. How, how about there are some times when we just forgive because it is morally right, because Jesus has commanded that we would do that. And there will be some times in your married life matched together with an unbeliever when you stay for no other reason than because it is morally right, because Jesus has commanded that under those circumstances, as much as is possible, you will stay. Husbands and wives, Paul says, should remain together. Now look at verse 17. Paul says, however, each one must live his life in the situation the Lord assigned when God called him. Wherever you were when God called you, as much as is possible, remain in that life situation. If you're married when God called you, you stay married. If you're single when God called you, you stay single with the exception of those who cannot abide with singleness, in which case Paul says it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Are you working in a certain industry when God called you? Remain as much as is possible in that industry and be salt and light in your circle of influence. Do you have a certain group of friends when God called you, when he saved you. As much as is possible, remain within that circle of friends and take the message of the gospel to them. 
Far too often we remove ourselves from the life situation we were in when God called us, and we run to the highly insulated body where we're free from the influence and the touch, the taint of the world around us. We want to be free of all of that temptation lest we succumb. And there are times when we need to flee that temptation indeed lest we succumb. But as much as we can, we want to remain in the life situation God called us so that we can be salt and light right there. What if God saved you to get the gospel to your group of friends? What if God saved you to get the gospel to your family? What if God saved you to get the gospel into your industry or to your workplace or to your school? God saved you where you are for a very specific purpose. The remainder of verse 17, the Bible says, this is what I command in all the churches. Was anyone already circumcised when he was called? He shouldn't undo his circumcision. Was anyone called while circumcised? He shouldn't get circumcised. Circumcision doesn't matter and uncircumcision doesn't matter, but keeping God's command does. I often wonder what people who are new to the church or the New Testament think when this discussion of circumcision comes up in biblical text the way it does. still a a practice medically in our culture, something that most, I think, would be familiar with, but bears tremendous religious significance in the first century. It was the distinguishing mark between the Jew and the Gentile. No good Jew would be found to be uncircumcised, and no good Gentile would ever dream or imagine of the need to be circumcised. Paul says it's not the the ritual act that really makes any difference. You remain in the life situation God called. If God saved you as a Jew, then remain in that life situation. There's discussion here about undoing circumcision. That may sound foreign, but in the days when the Greco-Roman culture was pressing in on Israel and the gymnasium in various Israelite cities were popping up, a place where not only exercise and competition was enjoyed, but most exercise and competition was enjoyed in the nude. Uncircumcision surgeries were happening among Israelite men in order that they could fit in with the Gentile participants in the games or activities at the gymnasium. Paul says that's foolish. It's not the externals that matter for us. It's who we are in our very heart of hearts. It's our obedience. It's our willingness to honor the commands of Jesus. It's who we are internally that matters in the eyes of God, given the power of the gospel. In verse 20, the Bible says each person should remain in the life situation in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? It should not be a concern to you. But if you can become free, by all means, take the opportunity. For he who is called by the Lord as a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called as a free man is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Don't become slaves of men. Brothers, each person should remain with God in whatever situation he was called. Now, this is not a true parallel, but the closest thing perhaps we have to what Paul has described here in the institutions of of slavery and freedmen in the first century setting is, is the idea of being employed or under the service of someone in our cultural context. Wherever you are, under whatever circumstances you're operating in life, remain in that place as best you can and be salt and light where God has placed you. When God saved me, I was a a part of the residential construction world, which is not exactly known for being a place where Sunday school teachers hang out, right? The language was coarse, 
and the behavior was bad, and it was quite difficult to walk faithfully with Jesus in that setting. And I can remember day after day after day praying, Lord, if you would get me away from these crazy people, I will not have thoughts of killing people anymore. <laughs> I, 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 could just, I could just be more faithfully committed to you, better devoted to you, if I didn't have this constant barrage of ungodliness at my door every day of my life. And eventually settling into the reality that perhaps God had placed me there for a reason. That he'd not come to save the righteous, but the unrighteous. That maybe, just maybe, God had me in the optimal place to get the message of the gospel to those who needed it best. Now, I know that some of you may be in a workplace, and it's less than ideal, and there may be challenges, and you may be praying my prayer, God, get me out of here right now. And God may in time prove to be faithful in answering that prayer in the affirmative, removing you from that situation or that setting. But for the time being, see it as an open door. Press into that workplace. Press into the family that may be wacky and crazy and dysfunctional. Be salt and light where God has placed you. For as long as God has you there, you may be in the optimal position for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In whatever life situation God calls you, abide there faithfully, boldly testifying to the truthfulness of the gospel. Verse 25, Paul continues, about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I do give an opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. In other words, I don't have a verbatim quote from the preaching ministry of Jesus, but under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, here's an amplification on what Jesus has said in times past. Therefore, I consider this to be good because of the present distress it is fine for a man to remain as he is. Underline the phrase, present distress. It seems that there was something happening in the city of Corinth, or maybe more specifically in the church at Corinth, that led Paul to take a more conservative view with regards to marriage and singleness. The present distress is assumed by some to mean a famine, it may be no more than the prospect or the reality of persecution around them, but in any event, there was a certain economic distress that had come upon the church and maybe even the city of Corinth that should be a factor for prospective husbands to consider, given that husbands were going to be responsible for providing for the, the physical, financial, and material needs of the family. It is fine for a man to remain as he is. In other words, if you're married, stay married. If you're not, you don't have to be. In fact, Paul goes further than that and says, stay single. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be loosed. In other words, if you're married, don't seek to be divorced. Are you loose from a wife or divorced from a wife? Don't seek a wife. However, if you do get married, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But such people will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. Now, this is what we've described in the past. Paul does it in a little more severe way than the language that I've used in times past. But to use Paul's language, there is a certain degree of trouble that comes with married life. I don't think he means that maybe the way we would receive it this morning. And shame on those of you who are bumping your spouse. 
But there are certain obligations and responsibilities that come with married life. That's what Paul intends here, in my estimation, by troubles. And given the present distress, whether it's an economic collapse, and we're not, we're not talking about 2008 and the housing market goes down. We're talking about we don't have bread on the table. Given the present distress, it would be wise if you are single to remain as you are. There are obligations and responsibilities that come with married life, that come with the family, and I'm trying to spare you of these troubles. Now, later in our passage, he explains more of what he means here. Look down to verse 32. I want you to be without concerns. An unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or a virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, so that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. So, so what Paul is saying is that with marriage and family come responsibilities and obligations that will be limitations for you in your service to the kingdom. And Paul speaks, he's a real fan here of the single life. He says again and again, I wish that everyone would be like me and be single and devote themselves wholeheartedly to the advancement of the gospel. I happen to be personally a big fan of marriage. I think it's a great thing. And, and I, I wish on some level that everyone could be even as I am. But the foundational principle here is the same, that all of the decisions that we make with regards to marriage and family, they, they all revolve around this singular concern that Christ would be glorified in our lives and that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be advanced to the uttermost parts of the earth. That is the singular focus of every follower of Jesus. And the decisions that we make with regards to marriage or remaining unmarried with regards to family, and all things family, are wrapped up in our focus on bringing glory to Jesus and advancing the gospel. Are y'all with me this morning? The focus of our life, whether we eat or drink, in marriage and in family, fulfilled and unfulfilled, whether we are single or married, all of the decisions that we make are in orbit around our interest in seeing Christ magnified and the gospel advanced. That is our exclusive focus in life. Verse 36, Paul continues, he says, but if any man thinks he's acting improperly toward his virgin, if she is past marriageable age, and so it must be, he can do what he wants. He is not sinning. They can get married. But he who stands firm in his heart, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will and has decided in his heart to keep his own virgin will do well. So then he who marries his virgin does well, but he who does not marry will do better. Paul is advocating here for singleness if possible. And what's being described, I think, in our passage is a situation where a marriage has been arranged or an engagement has been entered into. And what Paul is saying is that for those of you who have entered into an engagement or an agreement, a young man and a young woman, if you find that you have the ability to exist apart from one another sexually, remain in that situation in life. But if you do not have that capacity, then you should be married. And in doing so, you've not sinned. In fact, you have done a noble thing. 
my, my fear is that when people read this passage, my fear even in preaching through this passage and trying to honor and celebrate a bit singleness because that is such a countercultural thing in our world that people will get the impression, that young people will get the impression that in spite of their temptations towards sexual sin, that remaining single would be a positive for them. That could not be further from the truth. If you are wrestling against sexual sin and temptation at the present hour, it would be a foolish thing to think that you could persist in your wrestling against that sin without succumbing to that great temptation over the course of time. What you should be doing, young men and young women, is being hot on the look out for your husband or wife. Paul says, if you can remain single, stay that way. But if you cannot, marry. Now, we've sort of established this over the last couple of weeks. Remaining single is not a bad thing. But it's worth noting again here that neither is marrying. Marrying is not a bad thing either. And, and, and I would add, if, if I could bring the married man's perspective to the text, a perspective that Paul leaves out here, in the same way that there are troubles, obligations, responsibilities that can come with being married in ministry, there is a tremendous amount of liberty and help that comes with being married and a part of gospel advancing works. The key here, the key is that our decisions related to those matters are focused on the glory of Jesus and the advancement of the kingdom. Verse 39, Paul says, A wife is bound as long as her husband is living, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to anyone she wants, only in the Lord. In other words, if the spouse dies, you marry who you want to as long as they love Jesus with all their heart, soul, and strength and mind. But she's happier, Paul says, if she remains as she is, in my opinion, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. Now, we've sort of taken a, a teaching approach to this passage, and I, I think it requires such. There are some principles here that I, I hope we've sort of shored up in your heart, gained some understanding of what God's design for marriage and family is, what the parameters are for you, what the expectations are that God has for us. But I, I want to close by noting that I'm aware and, and I've become even more aware over the past few weeks of, of how raw our nerves are when it comes to marriage and family issues because these are such deeply personal issues. And I want to insist again in the close of our time that no matter what your marriage and family issue looks like, you don't have a problem or an issue that the resurrection of Jesus Christ cannot fix. But unless or until you are willing to come away from your stubbornness, to break down your pride, to get off of your ego, and acknowledge your desperate need for grace and mercy, you are likely to continue living in the muck and the mire of the mess that you have made. This morning, the call of God on our life is the same as every other day. You must repent of your sin and trust in Jesus. And I am confident that with repentance and faith, God can do the work of restoration and reconciliation and regeneration in your heart and in your home and in your marriage and in your family. You need only come to Jesus, the giver of every good and perfect gift. Would you do that this morning?
Would you do that? I, 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 I earnestly want, I want, listen, I want for the families within our body to be healthy and to be whole. I want for all of these little boys and little girls running around the campus of our church to go home today to a home that is characterized by peace and love and not fussing and fighting. And I want for you as husbands and wives to have the kind of satisfaction and fulfillment in marriage that God has always intended we would enjoy in that place. Would you pray for just that? Would you join me in asking that God would bless this body in that way? And would you resolve personally to do everything within your power to contribute to that reality being established, firmly established here at Longview Point? Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth, for the principles of our text. God, I pray that you would hide these words away in our heart that we might not sin against you. God, when no one is watching, when we're all on our own or behind the walls of our homes, I pray, God, that you would help us to be the men and the women that you have called us to be, to honor the teaching of this text and others related to marriage and family and who we are in Jesus. Help us, Lord, in the secrecy of our home to walk worthy of our calling. God, forgive us, for it's in that place that we so often come short. I pray that you would break our hearts over our sinfulness, that you would help us to be wise and discerning, more sensitive to the needs of those around us than we are our own. Give us a, a servant spirit, Lord. Help us to model our life and interactions within the, home, within the home after that of Christ who said, I came not to be served, but to serve. Help us to love and lead well, indeed like Jesus, our Savior. God, I, I pray that you would save the unbelieving spouse today. God, that, that you would break their heart and help them to see their lostness. So often, this mismatched situation comes about by one spouse entering into a marriage with someone who claims to believe, but the fruit is just not there. God, in our culture where virtually everyone acknowledges the existence of God, there's so much confusion about what it means to be saved or lost. God, I pray that you would help each person here today to examine the fruit of their life to see that they're in the faith. And God, if it's bitterness and anger and hostility and backbiting and constant fussing and fighting that are the characteristic traits of their family life, I pray that you would help them to see that those fruits are not worthy of repentance nor consistent with the profession that they have made. God, I pray that you would tear back the veil over their heart that they might see and believe on Christ in a deep, meaningful, moving way that would radically change their life, their marriage, their family, and their eternity. God, I pray that you'd be pleased to grant the gift of saving faith. Lord, pour out your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.